Texas, California, New York are the primary uh, states, but also the Washington, Illinois parts of the Southeast as well uh, have large numbers of, of Salvadorans. Construction is a primary industry in which Salvadorans work. They also work in, in landscaping, childcare, service industries. You know, they some have risen to management positions. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Phil Levy, filling in for Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the announced deportation of more than 200,000 El Salvadoran nationals who are currently residing in the United States. To help us understand what's happening, I'm joined by Jason Marzak, director of the Atlantic Council's Latin America Center. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Phil. And we also have with us Kevin Appleby, senior policy director on international migration at the Center for Migration Studies. Welcome to you, Kevin. Thank you for having me today. It's great to have you with us. The Department of Homeland Security announced that the Trump administration will not renew the temporary protected status, sometimes known as TPS, of more than 200,000 El Salvadoran nationals living in the United States. Today, we'll talk about the impact of this decision from the lenses of social policy, economics, and diplomacy. Kevin, maybe we can start by you giving us uh, some understanding of what exactly just happened and why this was news. Well, the the Trump administration has been reviewing several populations who have received in the past temporary protected status, which is a statute and law that allows uh, an administration to offer temporary um, legal status and employment authorization to populations from certain countries that may have may be experiencing conflict or some sort of natural disaster. And in the case of El Salvador, TPS was extended to nationals, Salvadoran nationals, in 2001 after a series of earthquakes in that country. But it's been extended numerous times by both the Republican and Democratic administrations over the past 17 years or so, uh, because country conditions there have not been sufficient for the government to receive their nationals back and also to ensure that they are safely repatriated. So this is news because <clears throat> these this population, the Salvadorans, 200,000 of um, in the country, have been here for years. They've established equities. They have families. They've bought homes. Um, they're virtually American citizens other than on paper. And now the government is pulling the rug from under them and saying, you have to sell your house, you need to take your kids out of school, you need to quit your job, and you need to go back to a country that is devastated by gang violence. That's essentially what this decision does. When, when you say the country that El Salvador was not ready to receive them back, is it the gang violence you were referring to or other things going on in El Salvador? Well, I think primarily the violence, but there's also certainly economic issues in the country. Um, and the government itself is having a hard time uh, governing the country. So if you take that all together, um, I would make the case that this population deserved another extension because of the status of the country. Not to mention the fact that this could be counterproductive in the sense that if you do deport some of these families, they may have to come back, they may attempt to come back illegally, um, through the border again to reunite with family or to reestablish their um, reestablish their residency in some way. So it's counterproductive on many levels. Jason, let's turn to you. What is the status of the government in the country in El Salvador? I don't think it's a place most um, most of our listeners are very familiar with. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Phil um, and Kevin. Great to be on with you as well. 
Uh, so before I answer your question, just want to throw in something else on, on Kevin's excellent response, which is that the effect of not renewing TPS will obviously be felt on Salvadoran families throughout the United States uh, in areas uh, all states all across the country, but also U.S. businesses. Uh, you look at, you know, uh, Kevin was mentioning, you know, the Salvadorans who have made a life for themselves here over the last 15 years have risen up to, in many cases, prominent uh, managerial roles and construction firms. Construction firms are helping with, you know, rebuilding Houston or rebuilding parts of Florida or other 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 uh, critical infrastructure projects around the United States. And so the U.S. is going to be, through this, losing uh, critical members of building the U.S. infrastructure that have learned the, the tools of the trade uh, over the years. And so that's, that's going to be a real problem. I, I know here in the Washington region that um, Miller Lawn Concrete Construction, for example, depends on uh, Salvadoran immigrants, many of whom are TPS beneficiaries for building new office buildings uh, all across Washington. Uh, I, I definitely want to come back to that question of what role they played in the in the U.S. sector, but just sort of while we were sort of tracing out this this claim about the major motivation for them being there is you essentially had an ongoing series of um, emergencies, disasters of one sort or another, what what we know of the conditions in El Salvador? Well, right now, you know, Phil, right now in El Salvador, uh, you know, I, 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 the, the, the government is not ready to respond to the potential of, you know, you have 195,000 Salvadoran TPS beneficiaries, but then you must also figure in that even their U.S.-born children, if they are to return, are going to return with them because you can't leave a 10-year-old to send for themselves in the United States. So, you know, the number could very well be upwards of, a, you know, half million potentially that would be returning to El Salvador. You know, I think last year the country received about 30,000 people. So this is, this is a tremendous, tremendous increase in the number of returnees for a, a small country of only 6 million people, and we're talking about adding potentially somewhere upwards, uh, you know, figure independence, maybe around a half a million to a country of only 6 million people. And it's a country, you know, as Kevin was saying, that continues to be, um, uh, to face uh, incredibly high levels of violence, pr- primarily uh, gang violence from gangs, uh, uh, the Mario, uh, Barrio de Ocho, Mara Salvatrucha, uh, two gangs that were formed uh, actually because of Salvadoran immigrants that were deported to El Salvador from Los Angeles in the 1980s. They learned the tools of the trade of how to how to be the uh, most effective gang members and brought that back to El Salvador. You also have you know a, a fledgling economy that struggles for foreign direct investment, and they also a you know uh, I would say some um, instability politically as well. You have uh, um, uh, both the last two former presidents. Uh, who are currently uh, undergoing uh, uh, trials around around corruption. Um, there is a huge polarization and political divide in El Salvador. And then, you know, we also must decide whether the, the, the extent to which this decision is contrary to U.S. interests, right? Because the U.S. has been doubling down on not only supporting El Salvador, but what's called the Northern Triangle, which includes Guatemala and Honduras as well, to try to improve their economies, uh, improved uh, security with the idea that by uh, making the situation better on the ground, you are going to decrease the push factors for unauthorized migrants to make the treacherous journey through Mexico to arrive in the United States. And so it, you add this whole other level of instability that will be created by the, the hundreds of thousands of people that could potentially be returning to El Salvador, uh, who uh, probably are, 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 as Kevin said, are much more American at this point than Salvadoran, 
will either be looking for jobs, will be the targets of gangs because gangs know that they people probably have more money than because they've been living in the United States, or also might also you know potentially be displacing domestic workers because people will be returning with um, higher level of skills that they've acquired in the United States. Thank you for that. So you both make a, a quite a compelling case for how challenging this would be for El Salvador. Let me just come back for a second, though. How are we supposed to think about the idea that this was supposed to be a temporary program? Because the challenges that you describe don't sound temporary to me. Those sound fairly chronic. Um, is How do we think about this sort of temporary moniker in this case? And let me, and let me throw that at you first, Kevin. Well, I mean, when when proponents of ending TPS or certain populations use the line "temporary" is meant to be temporary, they they have a point. When the when the bill was when the statute was enacted, the idea was that you know there would be six, twelve, eighteen months protection cycles, and then once the, the country recovers, then um, then people would be required to return. But the reality of the world is such, especially in these, particularly in these countries, which are very poor um, and are unable to recover, not only from natural disasters, but they're unable to really provide basic services to some of their population, like in the case of Haiti, uh, the the pressure uh, domestically here to allow them to remain because the countries haven't recovered, not only from whatever the first incident was to give them TPS, but from other uh, Things that are plaguing them have have encouraged government, our government, to continue the, this over time. And certainly, Congress needs to look at the statute and say, how can how can we tweak this statute to meet the temporary definition? And they also need to look at these long-standing populations and provide them a remedy, a permanent, so that, you know, permanent residency, if you will, because of their equities. Um, but of course, Congress isn't, hasn't stepped up to the plate, so we're left with uh, a statute that, even though it's temporary in the name, has essentially provided a protective status for populations from certain vulnerable countries, especially in our hemisphere. And I, I would add to that, Kevin, that you know I think that the um, you're right on that the the fundamental nature of this program I think is flawed, right? The fact that this is the word the program has the word temporary in it. Um, but it's any anything but temporary, right? This has been in in place, you know, since 2001. So, uh, you, you know, you mentioned um, you, me, you know you mentioned the uh, you know T, uh, Haiti as well. It's been 2010. We're also expecting a, a decision on, on Honduras as well. And the Honduras TPS designation is in place uh, for almost 20 years since 1999. Um, so it, it, it would seem to me like what's necessary is, as you say, some type of of legislative fix for the current debt TPS beneficiaries, many of whom, uh, in the case of El Salvador, Honduras, have been in this country for 15 or 20 years, but then also to changing the program moving forward such that we ensure that people in which we're providing, the U.S. is pro- providing relief, really do, are only here on that temporary basis so that um, we don't run 15 years into the problem yet again where uh, where somebody has established a life in the United States and they're more American than their home country, but then they're being asked to return home. Right, and and the one one point I'd like to add to that is, in in the current situation with these populations that are being impacted, the Hondurans, the Haitians, Salvadorans primarily, the United States has really 
encourage them to develop roots here by extending them, you know, that there has never been a situation up to now where there was an indication that they were going to have to uproot themselves. So in some ways, the U.S. has made a promise to them through their through our actions that they're going to be able to remain, and they've relied upon that over the years. Um, it's almost as if we've made an offer to them, they've accepted it, and that that's a contract unto itself, uh, and they relied upon it, and they've they placed their lives here. And now to rescind that agreement, uh, even though it might not be in writing, um, would 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 is, is a is a the wrong thing to do, really. It really undermines our credibility on some of these issues, and it, it really ruins lives that have been planned based on what the U.S. government has said to these groups. You, you've both mentioned uh, th- that the existing law uh, is not ideal by any stretch. There's, we're having ongoing discussions about perhaps having Congress take some action, perhaps a deal with President Trump. Are you at all optimistic that there will be a broader deal of this sort that could perhaps address the needs of this particular group and other groups? Uh, I I am am skeptical of a broader uh, congressional fix uh, in the midst of an election year. Uh, I I think in the midst of the political cycle of this in 2018 that uh, Congress will be focused on, uh, you know, keeping keeping the doors open and, and doing the bare bones, and then uh, legislators will be focused on campaign mode uh, just in a few months. And so I I, 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 see this as very difficult, especially with the potential of, you know, Republican members that would compromise with Democrats, then facing the risk of a primary challenge uh, further from the from the right. Um, you know, I, I think that you know that, that there you know hopefully is the possibility for a legislative fix uh, beyond uh, November, uh, but that will be I think any type of legislative fix will be a difficult pill to swallow because it will have to involve with with, with if it's a TPS fix combined with a a Dreamer fix, uh, it will have to involve some type of of uh, greater greater border security, which will be fundamental to the Trump administration. Kevin, are you any more optimistic on this? Well, I've been in this business a while, and I've seen proposals come and go. So I I agree with Jason on his premise that it's a long shot. However, it's funny that you ask again, because the president today, (laughs) in breaking news, suggested at a bipartisan meeting with um, congressional members that he would support uh, a broad legalization of the undocumented. Well, of course, you have to consider um, whether he said that off the cuff or whether he was prepared to say that with the backing of his administration. But um, now it seems to be that the negotiations on the DACA uh, solution for, for undocumented youth and the border wall and every other proposal the administration wants is being even made more complicated by the idea that Trump would support uh, a path to citizenship for all undocumented persons. So we'll see how this plays out. Um, I, You know, Talk is cheap, of course, in this city, and and to get to that place would take would take a lot. So I'm not that optimistic um, that they'll get there. But there is awareness. Having said that, there is awareness on the Hill um, about these populations and the need to find them uh, permanent a permanent solution, permanent residency. So it is in the mix in terms of the negotiations going on right now on immigration, whether they get 
to protecting some of these populations, I'm not so sure. But it is in the conversation, at least. And I should note for our listeners uh, who may be listening a little bit later that that update on what the president has said is coming uh, on Tuesday, January 9th, as we are uh, recording this conversation. Um, As you both bring up timeline, with Jason thinking we might not see anything until after the election, what is the timeline for this particular group? How is this going to actually take place? Are people being loaded onto planes or ships in the next week? Is this something that happens over a year? What, what happens next with this, barring a, a big new congressional development? Well, the beneficiary, the, the current status, I mean, the analysis from, from DHS is that uh, uh, current TPS beneficiaries, their program will end on uh, September 9th of 2019. Uh, so that is, um, you know, uh, you know a, a year a year and a half from now, uh, and you know I think in, in the in the interim uh, there will be a decision from uh, current TPS beneficiaries. Uh, you know some of them some of whom have um, will will decide to return home. Some will decide to remain in the U.S. without authorization. Uh, there's also the potential of beginning the process of people who haven't done it. If you have U.S. born children that are uh, of adult age, to begin the process of legalization through your U.S.-born children. And as you know, Kevin was mentioning before, uh, Haitians, is that Canada, for example, has seen um, a you know, large increase in the number of um, Haitian asylum seekers at its borders uh, because of the U.S. ending its, its program as well. And so that's a, a, a phenomenon that's uh, um, you know, starting to, I think, um, uh, overwhelm the Canadian authorities uh, of, um, of uh, asylum seekers that are, that are coming going north as well. I wanted to get a, pic- a picture partly where these people, this community is coming from and where they might be potentially heading to. In terms of where they're coming from, when we talk about this particular group with this temporary protected status, how big a fraction of El Salvadorans in the United States is this? Geographically, where are they? What, what are they doing? Kevin, do we have a clear picture of this? Well, they're about um, 195,000 to 200,000 TPS holders, um, Salvadoran TPS holders across the country. Um, about 55,000 in California, a, a large number in New York, um, some in Texas, other other states around the country. Um, I think there are about one and a half to two million Salvadorans in the country. So I would say about 10 to 15 percent uh, are TPS holders. Um, yeah, and I think you know uh, this is the Chicago Council in in, in Illinois. There are uh, estimated about thirteen hundred Salvadorans uh, with uh, that are living in Illinois with TPS designation. Uh, there's a large Salvadoran community here in the Washington area. There's about twenty thousand in Maryland, and uh, Virginia has about twenty one thousand. Um, so you know, as Kevin says, you know, Texas, California, and New York are the the primary uh, states, but also the Washington Washington region, uh, Illinois parts of the parts of the southeast as well, uh, have large numbers of, of, of Salvadorans. Um, many of whom, as we were talking about before, you know, Phil are you know sending large quantities of, of money back home, and are their their um, the money that they're making here is critical for keeping their economies afloat. You know. El Salvador gets about 16% of its remittances uh, comprise about 16% of GDP. So uh, not all of those remittances obviously come from the United States, but you know the, the vast majority do come from the United States. Um, and so there, there is going to be a real economic shock in El Salvador 
And as I said before, this is a country that is already reeling from unfavorable economic conditions. So uh, you, you can only imagine what that is going to do to exacerbate some of the push factors for folks making the uh, journey, uh, the unauthorized journey north to the United States. That's very helpful. I wanted to now come to the, this topic of what there's sort of economic involvement, actually in both places. You made some mention of what it would be landing in El Salvador. But in terms of the U.S., is there a particular profile? Are these well-integrated communities where we expect them to be doing the same kind of distribution of jobs as everybody else? Are they more involved in particular sectors? Do we have any sense of this? Well, Jason mentioned construction um, is a primary industry in which uh, Salvadorans work. They also uh, work in, in landscaping, um, even child care uh, service uh, industries as well. And, you know, they some have risen to management positions because they've been here over a large, a large amount of time. Um, you know, grocery stores, restaurants, and other food services, they're all part of those industries. And, you know, if, if you know, the Trump administration could wave a magic wand and get rid of them in a day, that would certainly have an economic impact on the country and the communities in which they live, especially in the construction area, um, but also in the service industry as well. So, um, and and it's hard to quantify that, what that economic contribution may be. There may be some studies on that, but it it, it, it's, it, it is significant. It would, it would have an impact. It, maybe the national economy may not feel it, you know, but the local economies will certainly feel it um, going forward. Yeah, especially, especially, again, especially local construction firms. And again, many of the construction firms are helping in rebuilding efforts in parts of the United States that have been affected by natural disasters over the course of the uh, of the last six months will will we'll feel some of those those, those effects. Um, you, know, you know, and I also think for people listening to this podcast, you are you, you really very likely interact with a Salvadoran TPS beneficiary or TPS beneficiary from another country every day. You probably don't even know it uh, because TPS beneficiaries, as we've been saying, are so integrated in, into society over over the years that. Uh, uh, whether it's uh, you know buying buying lunch at the local uh, local restaurants or at the grocery store, they, you know, these are people who are not only part of their, their communities, but are very much a part of all of our communities. And there's also an opportunity cost uh, in terms of the U.S. citizen children who may have uh, their futures threatened by this. Um, you know what they will contribute over their lifetimes. Um, to the economy, to our culture, et cetera, and will they be forced to return uh, to El Salvador as well? Um, and what, how does that how does that hurt our communities? Is a question that's really not always debated when you focus on what the contribution of the next generation will be, um, but that needs to be taken into consideration as well. Yeah, Jason, you, you've alluded to this. When you think about, let's suppose, a year from September. If the bulk of these uh, of this group ends up arriving in San Salvador, what would that mean for the country? And then, as we I'm going to close with this, what do we think this says about broader U.S. relations with Latin America? What kind of signal might this send as we try to address the region in the new Trump administration? Yeah, that's a great question, Phil. Um, you know, I, I uh, you know the Salvadoran foreign minister was. Uh, uh, 
Tom Rizzo's in Washington. I guess that was in, in, in November. Uh, the Salvadoran government was doing a big push both in Washington and in California on the importance of, of uh, renewing TPS designation. And they're frankly concerned that they don't, that, you know, the, that the Salvadoran government does not have the, the tools at its disposal, does not have the infrastructure, does not have the institutions set up to be able to receive this large of a most large quantity of people, many of whom, uh, you know, speak Spanish as a second language now. Uh, their primary language is English. And so there, there will be uh, real consequences locally. And again, I go back to my point that the, you know, the United States government um, has, you know, uh, for a number of years now been um, providing assistance to improve the economic and security situation uh, in the Northern Triangle of Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, because um, stability in Central America is critical for U.S. national security, uh, and it's also critical for mitigating push factors. And so this, this, this return uh, of TPS beneficiaries is running contrary to other stated U.S. policy interests. Um, what is this? What is this? What is what is the broader implicate? What are the broader implications for the Latin American region overall? Well, I think that there's there's a um, you know a, there's a decent amount of concern right now, uh, not just on immigration but on uh, U.S. Uh, commercial policy, our trade policy, insofar as what direction is the U.S. heading in? What kind of partner does the United States want to be for the region? Uh, Bill, we've done some work together on, on NAFTA and uh, and uh, uh, the importance of, of NAFTA, and uh, you see countries uh, across the region looking at how the U.S. and Mexico and Canada are, are moving forward in those negotiations to decide where they want to put their chips moving forward. Uh, this is this is also a moment in which you're seeing increased uh, Chinese um, uh, investment and in, in commercial interest in the region and an increased desire from many countries in the region to look toward Asia for, for their future. And so uh, these, you know, these types of decisions by the U.S. I think only um, perpetuate uh, some of these tendencies that we're starting to, to see from uh, countries across the region. Well, Jason and Kevin, if I, if I might please just add, uh, uh, I mean, one other aspect is, is that these Salvadorans who've been in the U.S. for years, they would be targets of criminal elements in El Salvador because they'll be perceived as having money, um, having some sort of skill, and being able to pay uh, these gangs extortion money, if, if you know, for lack of a better term. So it, they really would be placed more in danger because the, the gangs would know exactly who they were and, and where they had lived all those years. A great point, Kevin. Don't, yeah, I, I would. You know, I would be shocked if gang members are not watching every plane that's landing in San Salvador with TPS uh, uh, beneficiaries coming home and, tar and knowing exactly where they're going, uh, so they can be targeted once they're uh, once they're settled in country. Well, Jason and Kevin, thank you both very much for your your insights on all this. Um, you've been very generous with your time, and we really appreciate you. Uh, filling us in. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you liked the show, please subscribe or send the episode to someone you know who would like it. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Deep Dish is produced by Evan Fazio. I'm Phil Levy, filling in for Brian Hampson. We'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs.